Hey everybody, it's Bina007 back for the 28th episode of the Vassals of Kingsgrave Agatha Christie reread. Today I'm super excited to be joined by Hannah. Hey, Wing shout out on the Discord. And by Pat. Hi there, 2.0 on the Discord. And if you'd love to join us on the Discord, you can Google Vassals of Kingsgrave or VOKpodcast.com and you'll find a link to join us there. Today we are discussing Sad Cyprus, which was originally published in March 1940, actually quite soon after, and then there were none. You're going to notice in the next couple of episodes that the UK publication dates, at least, are only one per year, which is a lot slower than her output in the 1930s and was almost entirely for income tax reasons. <laughs> Um, the, his <laughs> the historical context between the publication of the last novel and this is therefore quite quick. It's just three months. Um, so what was happening in the world of early 1940? In January, food rationing begins in the UK. And actually, it will go on to last for 10 years. So imagine not being able to buy your own choice of loaf of bread or as many eggs as you'd like or as many packs of butter or bits of sugar for a whole decade. And eating and chocolate. And chocolate. chocolate. I mean, just like so many important things. Eating fish paste sandwiches is going to feature heavily in this book. For those of you who've never read it before or reading it for the first time and wondering what fish paste is, uh, we'll get into that <laughs> when we get into the book. Um, in February, apparently nothing that much of note happened. We're still in the sort of phony war days of World War II. But in March, uh, bad stuff starts to really happen. We have the Katyn Massacre which the Soviet Union denied for many a year. The Winter War ends between Finland and Russia in a kind of a stalemate, but my goodness, the mighty Finnish. The Finns have an amazing saying that there's always an army in our country, either ours or the Russians, so it better be ours. <laughs> I really admire them for that. Mm. Um, and then Neville Chamberlain is still prime minister. This is not yet the moment where Winston Churchill has taken over. And Belgium and France are still free. So war's sort of on the peripheral vision of things, but it's not yet making itself known in the novels. Agatha Christie and Max Mallowin, the archaeologist, have to come home to England, and they probably don't like it very much. Both of their houses, Greenway and Winterbrook House, were requisitioned by the army. Their London house at 48 Sheffield Terrace, Kensington, not quite yet, but will become unsafe by bombing. So they're basically going to be homeless and she ends up um, in a rented flat for most of the war. She chooses to live in London to be with her husband who takes a job in the air ministry. He spends most of the early war trying to get a job um, overseas so he can use his language skills and his knowledge of the Middle East. And as we, uh, we started this reread, Agatha Christie was a very young girl in Torquay and she was training to be a nurse in World War I. And she once again volunteers to work at the pharmacy in University College Hospital. So for three years during the war, she put in two full days, three half days and Saturday mornings and filled in when other workers couldn't get to the hospital. So basically, that's partly also, I think, why her writing output went down, because she was working effectively full time in the pharmacy as a dispensing chemist. Mm. Um, which, you know, it's kind of cool. Like one of the richest women in England just does her part, which I kind of respect. It's actually interesting. I hadn't realized until this reread that Max Malowin's dad was actually Austrian, an Austrian citizen, despite the very kind of English sounding surname. So he actually did find it quite hard to get what he thought of as real war work. He was 35 when war broke out, but he, it took him until 1942 to sort of get proper jobs, so to say, or one that didn't make him feel ashamed that he wasn't making part of, you know, the, being part of the war effort. At the same time, Agatha Christie's daughter, Rosalind, is grown up by this point. And as the war goes on, we'll see that she gets married and, and has um, a child and her, her husband is also serving. So Agatha Christie definitely from her husband and her son-in-law eventually will be very exposed to the perils of war. So she lived in London through the war. So the, you know, a place that was being bombed nightly that was incredibly dangerous to live. So it is going to be really interesting to see how that is or isn't reflected in her work. But this is the key point about the frequency of writing. So Christie did not receive any of her increasingly large American royalties because of the war. And I haven't kind of figured out why this is the case, but maybe it was to do with 
currency controls or something. I'm going to try and investigate that. But she was required by the British authorities to pay taxes on the money she had not received. So she just went deeper and deeper into debt and was really thinking about selling her country house Greenway. Um, but mm -hmm. no one would buy it because it's war and no one has any money. And also it's like chock full of British officers at first and then eventually American officers. So, um, yeah, she really had a really tough war. I imagine like everyone, I don't think anyone had a good war, right? I mean, it must have been very, very traumatic for everyone involved. But anyway, this is the situation at the time of this book coming out. The war's still the phony war. Max Malawin's at home, very, very frustrated. Agatha Christie is just refreshing her training to be a pharmacist and their houses are being requisitioned. So how do you guys think of this book, Sad Cypress? Had you read it before? Is it one of the top tier Agatha Christie's? How would you describe it? And just for the listener, before we get into this, rest assured that as always, we will be spoiler free until the end credits music, and then we'll get into the spoiler fill stuff after that. So maybe Pat, had you read this one before? No, it's the first time reading it. I would put this top tier, but only just. It's sort of like it gets in by a fingernail, I would say. It's not um, of the same caliber as uh, Death on the Nile, which I'm going to sort of use as my benchmark now for top tier. But right. by the same token, it's by a measure for me better than Appointment with Death or Hercule Poirot's Christmas. You know, things yeah. that I, I, I wouldn't recommend people read. I, I think that if you've read a couple of Christie's and enjoyed them, I think you'll enjoy this as well. I think that's a good way of putting it. For me, it's it's the same. It's top tier, but at the very bottom of top tier. It's sort of between tier one and tier two. Mm. I actually was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. And I think I often enjoy the Christie's where there are real interesting sort of love stories or love triangles. I think she's actually quite good at that stuff. And that's maybe why I respond to them. How yeah. about you, Hannah? Had you, had you read this before? So I had, I had done this one before. Um, and I'm really glad that you... Uh, you know, put to us, should we do this as a main and not just a mini pod? Because when you first suggested it, I had had this confused because of the name Sad Cypress. I was thinking this was one of the ones like Death on the Nile that's uh, written in a foreign place. Mm -hmm. And I had forgotten it. So I enjoyed, you know, re-experiencing it. I just did the radio play. It's definitely interesting with the breakaway to all the the different settings and the courtroom specifically. So I'm really glad that we decided to do this one and I got to okay. refresh. And I also learned that the name Sad Cypress does not come from a travel guide of any kind. <laughs> it's a song in William Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. But it's fair to say that Agatha Christie was always a huge fan of Shakespeare. She named her daughter Rosalind after the character in Shakespeare. And she loved going to Shakespeare plays. And the, the, the passage from Twelfth Night comes from Act Two, Scene Four. Come away, come away, death, and in sad Cyprus let me be laid. Fly away, fly away, breath, I am slain by a fair, cruel maid. My shroud of white struck all with you, O oh, prepare it. My part of death, no one so true did share it. So it's, a, it, it's beautiful. I think it's, it's so Christy. To have a beautiful, beautiful piece of uh, Shakespeare in there. There are a couple of reasons why I love it. I love it for the central kind of character drama. I think it's really convincing. And I really like the structure of it. I, I like the fact that it's written in these three parts that you've got. Yeah. The first part, which is sort of the account, basically from the perspective of Eleanor Carlyle, of the death of her aunt, Laura Wellman, who's quite wealthy. And then we have the second death, with, which is that of Mary Gerard. So Eleanor Carlyle is the person, along with her cousin, who is presumably going to stand to inherit all of Laura Wellman's wealth. Mary Gerard is a sort of young girl who is basically the gardener's daughter that Laura Wellman took an interest with in and has funded her education. So she's now in this sort of no man's land where she's kind of working class, but educated to be something more. And she subsequently dies. And as the book opens, Eleanor Carlyle stands accused of Mary Gerard's death. And everyone, everyone assumes that Eleanor Carlyle is guilty because she was going to marry her cousin, Roddy Wellman. Don't worry, they're not actually related cousins. It's more like through marriage. And that they were going to enjoy Laura Wellman's wealth. But Roddy Carlyle fell for Mary Gerard. So apparently this is like a vicious murder out of jealousy that this girl took her lover away. 
Um, so that's the sort of the first part of the story. Mm. The second part of the story is Hercule Poirot coming in and investigating the events because Dr. Lord, who one suspects has got the hots for Eleanor Carlyle, thinks it's very unfair that this woman is being condemned in a courtroom for killing Mary Gerard. Because he third, fancies her. Yeah, because so he, he fancies he's her. Not fair. <laughs> and then the third sequence is that, you know, we're going to get the court courtroom drama, which again is from Eleanor's perspective. And Eleanor herself is quite an unreliable narrator because she's in shock, you know. Her beloved yeah. aunt has died. She's inherited all this money. But the man she desperately loves has gone off with another woman who then has been found dead. And she did wish her dead because that's just mm. human nature. And then suddenly she is dead. So maybe, you know, there's a lot of gaslighting, a lot of really cool psychological stuff going on. And I think it's just, for me, that's why I love this book. There are flaws with it. But for me, it makes top tier because I just think the structure of it and then the characterizations are really, really strong. It's also more realistic, the fact that, you know, how many times, what are the odds of all these murders happening, you know, while Perot's on a train, while Perot's on a trip <laughs> down the Nile, while Perot's, you know, getting vegetable marrows in a garden on yeah. retirement. And in this one, he's called in, rather. So I do appreciate that it uh, is a little more, it rings true. It's like when you watch NYPD Blue or Law and & Order and you realize there's like, vastly more violent crime on those shows than occurs annually in the city of New York. So Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Not even that. Watch a show like Midsummer Murders, which is set in a tiny English village and, and has a body count now, I think it must be in the hundreds. Well, I think, yeah. I think exactly what you're saying is exactly why Agatha Christie did it. I think she was starting to chafe at the formulaic nature of, oh, Pariah takes a train and someone happens to die, and that she herself wanted to make it feel more realistic and have him brought in. She'd actually set the three-act tragedy in a courtroom and the publisher had knocked her back and said, you don't understand courtrooms enough to be able to write authoritatively about them. She's had another stab at it with this one. And I, like personally speaking, I actually enjoyed the courtroom elements a lot. I thought there were some of the um, most interestingly written parts, you know, the, the back and forth with the barristers and the, the witnesses, I thought was quite good. So... I mean, I think she was trying to challenge herself with form. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was all, always trying to write out people like, you know, we've already had her write out Hastings. She's then written out Spectre Jap. She was always trying to drop Hercule Poirot, but was never quite allowed to. Well, because in her biography, she said that um, she, she'd actually tried to write Poirot out of this one, um, but being pressurized by an American publishers to put him back in. And I think he, he sits in quite nicely, but by the same token, you, you can actually see if you lifted him out, um, you, okay, you'd have to put somebody else in the middle to do the detective work, but the other two sections of the book stand quite strongly on themselves. You know, the initial theme setting with the story between Eleanor and Roddy, and then the, the final bit in the courtroom drama where all the details are sort of revealed. I, I think it, it, it works quite well. I mean, the Poirot stuff I find very entertaining. But I think absolutely, um, I couldn't agree more. Um, so, like that—that's one thing I wanted to, to to sort of like touch on because, um, like, I, I thought that point on the podcast, the All About Agatha podcast, about um, Christie trying to write Poirot out of this and then being pressurized by her American publishers to put him back in because he was such a popular character. I thought that was interesting because if you look at like the previous two books you covered in the podcast, there's no Poirot in those. So she's mm. definitely been trying to move away from it. But I just, I also find it interesting that her publishers could exert that much pressure on her. And I remember I went to see an author. He did like a, a talk on a book launch and it, it, his name was David Gemmell. He's written a lot of science fiction and fantasy, and he actually was trying to move into historical fiction. And he said, um, when he was talking about it, that the difficulty when you're trying to move out of your genre and you speak to your publishers is, is they've got like a two-pronged argument that you can't really escape. The, the first one is like, if you're going to write something different than your audience is expecting, we might not be able to publish it under your name because mm. we don't want to mislead people. They're going to expect a fantasy novel and you're writing historical fiction. They're going to be upset. I bear in mind she was doing that, right? I mean, she was yeah. writing Mary Westmacott and those were more sort of just dramatic fictional yeah. novels. So she already and had a sort of a side hustle writing a completely different yeah. style of novel. So she was the, happy the, to the, do that. Yeah, the second prong of that attack, though, David Kemmel said was, uh, so I turned around to my publishers and said, yeah, that's fine. I don't mind. I'll write under a different name. And they said, 
well, if you do that, we're going to be paying you less because you're not the big name draw that we have for the books. I think it was just more she liked its horses for courses with Agatha Christie. And she did enjoy writing Priory to the end because she didn't kill him off. And you can tell from her biography that she enjoys writing him as she enjoys writing Miss Marple. I think it's more she had a strong feel for where she thought he was appropriate. I mean, bear in mind, she's got Tommy and Tuppence. She's got Miss Marple. She's got her standalone thrillers. She's got the adventure books, all under this sort of Agatha Christie brand name, let alone the Mary Westmacott. So I think it was less that she felt she had to have him in everyone, but that there were certain stories she felt structurally might have been better off with that. It's really fascinating. And I think, well, let's reopen the discussion when we get into... I think it's going to be episode 31, which is N or M, which is a Tommy and Tuppence novel from 1941, which is, I think, the one that's most explicitly all about the war. And there isn't much of the war in this one, for sure. And after that, that's kind of like the high um, watermark of war reference. And I think the publishers and she maybe felt that that's not what the reading public needed at the time. Like if mm. the war's all around you, maybe you need a more, you know, Miss Marple in a village and no war kind of a book to get away from it. So I think, yeah, this we'll never really know, will we? But this kind of thing between what the publisher's asking her to do versus what she is sort of almost self-censoring or... Um, not self-censoring is the wrong word. Maybe if, even if you didn't feel like writing a poro, you'd write one because you would feel that in 1943, that's almost like a public service. You know, you're the mm. big selling author in, in England. Maybe it's actually a public service to give people a bit of escapism. <laughs> uh, let's get into the characters. And I think we should start with a Xander, the Lord Baron, um, honorary little mention of Poirot. There are some great Hercule Poirot Poirotisms in this in this novel. He is in full flight of arrogance that we love him for. Um, there's hey. a brilliant <laughs> there's a brilliant quote where he says, um, then I shall have to interview your client. Mr. Seddon said with a cold smile, that I fear will not be easy. Poirot rose and made a gesture. Everything, he said, is easy to Hercule Poirot. <laughs> yeah, that's priceless that one i've got that one down as well i thought that was excellent the only other one was where he was actually talking to the policeman and it just says he was speaking deprecatingly to him that's the only um thing that i've uh i, I don't want to picked up but the 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 there were quite a few there's but, another really brilliant one where um nurse hopkins is quite an intelligent woman within her limitations <laughs> but her intellect is hardly the equal of mine she might not see but her cure poirot would and i love the fact that a he's so arrogant but he's like literally referring to himself in the third person yeah. <laughs> i'd like you know it's almost like chrissy's right right i'm gonna put him in and i'm just gonna like give him a kicking while i'm there just like you know I'm if you want poirot i'm gonna give you the most poirot-y poirot-ness. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that I thought was really good about this middle section, though, with Poirot when he's doing his interviews and he's got all these little Xander Poiroism stuff, I, I, I do feel that Christie, and I think she does it more in this than any of the other Poirots I've read, she's emphasizing how charming he is when he's interviewing these people because they yeah. all start off prejudiced against him and he, he manages to charm them all. He's got the ability to push their buttons in the right way to get them to start talking to him and revealing stuff. That, Absolutely. That, that he, knew, he, knows, he knows who mentioning an aristocratic friend will help with. Yeah. or He plays yeah. everyone. I've got yeah. one final Lord Baron Xander Poirotism um, for a friend where he says, uh, believe... <laughs> Sorry, believe me, really, it would, be, it would be better not to ask them. I'm in good hands. Mr. Seddon has been most kind. I'm to have a very famous counsel. That's Eleanor speaking. Yeah. Poirot said, he is not so famous as I am. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Eleanor Carlyle said with a touch of weariness, he has a great reputation. Yes, for defending criminals. I have a great reputation for demonstrating innocence. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> He, oh, he, you know, he, he is really good. And I think that's one of the reasons he manages to get himself on the case as well. Um, he, he effectively uses the same to um, convince Roddy Wellman to, you know, um, give him instructions to meet the solicitors and act on her behalf. So yeah. he did, yeah, he's yeah, very, very entertaining. He's a charming man. This one is Sorry? the first time that I really like sympathized with Perot more because 
many of the ones that I love the best and I've reread most are with Captain Hastings and he's so abusive to my sweet little nugget <laughs> Hastings. And so, you know, I can get a little sick of the arrogance and like, what an ass. But this one really struck me as I can see why someone would have sort of the psychological need to put themselves up on this pedestal because you've got people's lives in your hands. I mean, what's at stake here is the potential that this woman is innocent and without strong intervention, she's going to hang for a crime that uh, she may or may not have committed. And, you know, in a job like that, you would really need that confidence and that swagger to get through it and trust yourself, trust your instincts, trust your little gray cells doing their job and so mm. this one is probably sympathetic toward Poirot for that yeah that's a yeah, really that's great point. point it's important yeah. for the listener to remember for us to remember that this is a time of capital punishment and if Eleanor Carlyle is convicted of killing Mary Gerard she will hang mm. so this is definitely life and death stakes I also wonder a little bit with Poirot is you know he's still in an era when um, people mock him for being a foreigner and that funny little mm-hmm. man. And, you know, sometimes you've got to blow your own trumpet because no one else is. You know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. So how do you guys find Eleanor Carlyle as a character without any spoilers? I mean, she is a big part of this novel, like two thirds of it are sort of from her perspective. Um, a really fascinating, you know, I always say Agatha Christie writes really interesting women. This is just a little description of her in the novel. Eleanor Carlyle stood very straight, her head raised. It was a graceful head, the modelling of the bones sharp and well-defined. The eyes were a deep, vivid blue, the hair black. The brows had been plucked into a faint line. She's a modern young woman. She is confident. She's seen to be maybe quite cold. She know, or she thinks to herself, I'm not a great beauty, but she's definitely got something about her. How do you find her as really the person we're meant to sympathise with, but also maybe also suspect? I definitely I had an image of her as uh, Miss Mary from Downton Abbey. Yes. <laughs> sort of the <laughs> pragmatic, reserved, you know. I agree. Yeah, I, I, I think most no, of what I've got to say about her, I'll probably leave until the spoiler section because I think that's where most of her most interesting stuff. Yeah, I think you have to be able to talk about what she's thinking in the context of what we know finally happens. But it okay, is... well, then let's then leave it for then. But let's get into Roddy Wellman, her cousin by marriage slash fiance. Um, I think he's meant to be rather dashing, rather not devil may care, but you know, a man of action, sort of attractive. Isn't, isn't this just Christie's first husband again? I think it might be. <laughs> so, oh. I mean, what, what I've got down here is we know he's charming um, because Poirot tells us he's charming. We know he, he went to Eton because there's that great bit in the, the stand where the uh, prosecuting KC yeah. effectively proves his point by just saying, you went to Eton, didn't you, Mr. Wellman? And he goes, yes. And he goes, yeah. that, 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 that is all, Your Honour. Thanks. <laughs> Much as we but, might condemn contemporary prime ministers, oh, they went to yeah. Eton, he's closed. <laughs> yeah. we, we also know he is a complete cad because he declares his love for Mary Gerard the morning after his aunt dies and while he's still engaged to another woman. So the guy has absolutely no sense of propriety at all. I mean, I, we, I, also, I just, I we also know that she loves him much more than he loves her from that. It's a very classic yeah. Agatha Christie love triangle, isn't it? Yeah. She often has these very proud, admirable women who are just head over heels in love with men that one suspects don't really deserve her love. And maybe that yeah. is Archie Christie and Agatha Christie or her perception of it. Yeah. Um, but it is a, it's a story that is used a lot. I feel, and I do. I, I do think that, that yes, I, I do think she that 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 sort of that um that love triangle does get repeated quite a bit, doesn't it? In 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 Christie, and I do think she's she's drawing on her experiences from her first marriage when she's writing this Roddy Wellman character, particularly because there's that bit, and you've made this point a few times in the past, and I, I think I've poo pooed it a bit, but I I do think it comes across again here 
where he, he actually says explicitly, you know, I, I, I hate the idea of having to live off my wife's income. You know, it's emasculated me. I don't, uh, yeah, I don't want to be dependent on her. She should be dependent on me. And I do yeah, think that, again, so it's, like you it's said, what... Christy's cycling that, that first marriage, you know, where uh, she's become absolutely. more successful than her husband. Yeah, I agree. There's basically uh, Aunt Laura Wellman was always thought to leave her um, money to both of her both of these cousins but in the end it goes to it goes to Eleanor not to Roddy which wouldn't matter if they were married right because in those days the marital assets were pooled but mm. somehow I think it does chip a little bit away at Roddy um Hannah what's your view on our dashing uh, protagonist Roddy Oh, I was just going to say to Pat's point, you know, it, it doubles down on uh, the fact, you know, from minute one, we're told that he likes to play this game of cat and mouse, you know, don't, don't show him that you're too interested or he'll lose interest yeah. in you. And yeah. um, just the general arrogance and, pup, yeah. you know, puppetry that goes along with that. And in order for, uh, um, you know, her to get what she wants out of it, it has to play these, these games and, um, yeah, it does. Yeah, it reminds me a lot of Death on the Nile, and I kind of think if the marriage had gone ahead, would it have become like the marriage of Lynette Doyle with her husband, where she kind of wanted to spend the money, but he was like, "God damn, a fellow doesn't like to be bought or to be owned." And yeah, it, it's it's meager praise for Roddy Wellman to say he's just slightly better than uh, than Simon Doyle. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, I think the one thing that kind of spares her from probably a really bad match and marriage is that he has enough familial, you know, kindred love for her to be honest with her when he is confronted and but, 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 get out of it. Hannah, I think you're letting him off too lightly because she actually drives that whole situation. <laughs> He basically just like um, I think there's more than one occasion where he is accused of being a coward. I think Poirot calls him a coward. I think there's mm -hmm. a bit where they're in the the lawyer's office offices discussing the wills, and the, the lawyer just reads him straight up. He might he might even owe the lawyer money because he he, he turns the lawyer turns around to him and goes, "Well, sometimes we back out of difficult situations." Roddy's going, "Why didn't my aunt make a will?" And and the lawyer's going, "Well, sometimes people don't like to face difficult situations, do they, Mister?" And he's like, mm, yes, <laughs> yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Pot calling kettle black. Maybe let's have a few words about Mary Gerard, the pretty young girl who has turned Roddy's head, although I suspect any pretty young girl might have turned his head. This is the description from Agatha Christie. At 21, Mary Gerard was a lovely creature with a kind of wild rose unreality about her, a long, delicate neck, pale golden hair lying close to her exquisitely shaped head in soft, natural waves, and eyes of a deep, vivid blue. It's interesting, actually, that later on in the novel, The Moving Finger, she's going to describe a character who's equally pretty, but really vacuous and has no mm. sex appeal whatsoever. And I think that there is something about Agatha Christie, again, describing her love rivals. Maybe this is the way she looks upon... Maybe she thinks of herself as less pretty than the women who take away her men, like the Archie Christie situation. Mm. That said, um, her own father is quite caustic towards her, thinks she's a bit jumped up above her station because mm. she's been educated out of being working class. We know that the working class guy, Ted Bigland, rather, you know, likes her, would like to marry her, but she thinks she's above that. And, you know, Mary Gerard does want to get stuff out of Laura Wellman, too. She's hoping that Aunt Laura will, having paid for her high school education, maybe pay for her to go on and do something more, maybe get her a profession. So Yeah, but um, I, I think there's a good point made by Nurse Hopkins on that, because Aunt Laura has um, basically looked after Mary Gerard from a very young age and almost created that expectation, you know, that, that he will help Mary if Mary wants something. Because, I mean, when you were a very rich person and you tended to do this for people who were under you, you, you are creating those expectations. And I thought this, I'm going to get sidetracked here, um, but it had echoes of Jane Austen's Emma to me this. You've got this idea of somebody from a perceived lower class being raised above their station, you know, through education, you know, and, and they can't yeah. really do anything with it. And I, and I thought, like, these characters just 
they map straight onto Jane Austen characters. Oh, so I think like, that's a really, really astute comparison. Emma is Eleanor, Knightley is Roddy, Harriet yeah. Smith is Mary Gerard, and Robert yeah. Martin is Ted Bigland. Yes. And Robert Martin's a farmer in Emma, and Christie's called Ted Bigland, Ted Big Land. You yeah. know, so I, I, <laughs> she's not even spent any time thinking about the names. She just said, yeah, I'll just... That's I think that's, like, it didn't occur to me, but I think you're absolutely spot on. That's very astute. But do you guys like Mary Gerard? what you see of her? Or is she just an unfortunate cipher? I will start by saying if this was one of those, you know, vegetable marrows in the garden type murders that just happens around Poirot and he had known Mary Gerard in life, we would have had more than one passage of him, you know, high praise and what a sweet girl and being very personally invested in bringing her justice because he had fallen somewhat in love with her character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think she's got a couple of admirable traits that uh, uh, maybe um, similar um, female um, characters, love interests, don't get in in other um, stories, you know. And so she has she's had the um, the good manners to turn Roddy down when he's mm. approached her after uh, her aunt, uh, his aunt has just died. <laughs> so morning afterwards, still engaged to somebody else, and he's like, "I love you," and she's like, uh, "I think this is a bit soon, Roddy. Back off." <laughs> You know, show some um, show some manners here and some decorum, please. You know, and so, also that uh, grieving the loss. You know, she she genuinely has affection for her employer. Yeah, so yeah, I, she I do likes think Aunt got... Laura. I think that's genuine, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yes, Aunt Laura was paying for her, but you get the impression that she genuinely was very fond of her. Yeah, in the same way that the two cousins were as well. So, like, I, I think she's got some positive bits, and I, I also think uh, there's that bit where Ted Bingler is talking to Poirot about her. And Poirot gets all misty-eyed and romantic about the situation, doesn't he? Because Poirot goes, what did you think of her? And she goes, oh, she was a flower. And then Poirot goes, suddenly, you know, all the other descriptions of him were wiped away. And he saw (laughs) exactly how Mary Gerard was, you know. And it's quite quite poetic and a bit sentimental, but I quite like that. And I did think it conveyed... That, that that sort of sense, you know, Ted Bigland um, was obviously very much in love with her. So I, I do think, yeah, she's, um, she's a nice character. Shame we lost her so soon. So. Yeah, mm. I agree. Well, let's let's talk about the other characters and maybe in doing so lay out the spoiler-free bits of the plot. So effectively, the novel opens with a poison pen letter being sent to Eleanor Carlyle, telling her that someone is trying to muscle in on her aunt in her dying days and maybe divert the inheritance and Eleanor shows it to her cousin Roddy and they think Mary it's Mary maybe it is Mary Gerard interestingly the poison pen letter is going to come back in a few novels with the moving finger so they dash off to the dying aunt Laura Wellman in this beautiful country house and she she is dying but not with any haste and Dr Lord who's attending on her she is having strokes, but there's nothing sort of immediately sort of um, like there's no urgency that she's going to die in the next 24 hours, except that she does. And the night before she had asked or made Ellen a promise that she would alter her will to make provision for Mary Gerard. They had decided to call in the solicitor who would come the next morning, but she dies in the night. So there are two nurses in the house, Nurse O'Brien and Nurse Hopkins. And as it transpires... A tube of morphine has been either mislaid or stolen conveniently just before this murder is committed. So the initial murder is that of Aunt Laura Wellman, but it's not immediately obvious that it is a murder. Dr. Peter Lord thinks it might have been a mercy killing, perhaps, by by someone in the house, like a, a deliberate overdose. And there is a discussion as to whether she could have herself have taken the overdose to put herself out of her misery, but she was very, very frail, so that's probably highly unlikely. So the people in the house at the time of the death are Aunt Laura herself, the two nurses, the two cousins, and obviously Mary Gerard's coming in and out. There's the housekeeper as well. So those are the people who are proximate. The death occurs. We discover that there is no will, and so the next in line to inherit the money is Eleanor because she's actually the blood relative cousin or sort of niece of Laura Wellman rather than a nephew by marriage. Shortly thereafter, the relationship between Roddy and Eleanor breaks up because he's had his head turned 
by Mary Gerard. And we then move forward in time. Eleanor is packing up the big country house. She's just going to sell it. She had imagined living there with her fiancé, but now the marriage is off. And at the same time, we have Mary Gerard and Nurse Hopkins doing the same sort of packing at the father's house because the, the gardener father has also passed away. So these three women are in these dusty houses and Eleanor invites the other two up for lunch. She makes two rounds of sandwiches, one with one type of fish paste, the other with another. Um, some beer is available, a pot of tea is served. And after lunch, Mary Gerard is found dead, poisoned, and everyone assumes that the poison was in the sandwich and the fish paste that uh, Eleanor Carlyle made. Not helped by the fact that she clearly had motive to off a love rival. And also that when she bought the fish paste in the local butcher's shop, she mentioned casually, oh, isn't there a problem with people getting fish poison, uh, poisoning from tomaine from these fish paste pots? So the evidence is very much stacked against her. And that's when Poirot is called in. So let's get into the characters that we have hitherto not discussed. So Pat, Nurse O'Brien and Nurse Hopkins, take it away. Uh, I just thought they were a, a great comedy double act. Is that bit where they're exchanging letters sort of uh, in the midpoint of the book? And um, what is it? Nurse O'Brien says when she's changed houses, this is a lovely house and the beach, I believe, is quite famous. But I fancy it's not as nice as Hunterbury. The girls, they've got a raw lot here and some of them are not too obliging. And no, I'm sure I'm never one to give trouble. Meals sent up on a tray should at least be hot and have facilities for tea and a kettle. And the tea should not always be made with boiling water. <laughs> I just thought this so so caustic i thought that that that, that was hilarious very, they were a great double act, so. <laughs> very i think agatha christie just gets kind of sniping bitchy middle-aged spinsters yeah. in a way that few others do i, I agree yeah. with you i think they're absolutely superb characters i also think in the same category as Miss, mrs bishop right because she can also be a total bitch so yeah, yes she <laughs> that, that interview that poirot has with her as well is is priceless the, the two nurses together remind me of like a, a nursing home version of Ab Fab in a way. They also remind me a bit of um, Statler and Waldorf and the Muppets sitting up yeah. in the balcony, just like yeah, commenting over a thing and saying, "Ah, that stinks." You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but oh. I, I just I, I I love the way they lead up and saying we don't want to speak ill of this person, but here you go, we're but going to speak now, ill of them. Let's now proceed to ill of them for the next paragraph. Yeah. And uh, the housekeeper, Mrs. Bishop, is exactly the same. I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but <laughs> this was what was wrong with her. <laughs> Like, oh my Absolutely. God. I mean, I, I really do think that the characterizations are really good in this book and it's a lot yeah. of fun to read. And I would, you know, listener, if you haven't read this yet, I think if, if you respond to the characterization in Christie or sometimes feel they're not good enough, then there, there's a lot of humor to be had in this, especially, you know, with the characterization of Poirot and then the nurses, there's a lot of fun in this. Mm. Okay, let's maybe move into what has or hasn't held up well on reading this since it was written in 1940. Um, it's certainly not the worst of the Agatha Christie novels in this respect, no. and certainly compared to And Then There Were None, there's very little to talk about, but there are a couple of things which aren't particularly pleasant. There is one particularly nasty anti-Semitic comment. Mm. Uh, people leaning forward, their lips parted a little, their eyes agog, staring at her. Eleanor with a horrible ghoulish enjoyment, listening with a kind of slow, cruel relish to what that tall man with a Jewish nose was saying about her. That's mm. her sort of observing one yeah. of the opposing council, which I just thought was, it's like so unnecessary and just... Yeah. And, and, and there's a couple of mentions of the, 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 the sort of the Jewish profile, aren't there? Yes. Which, uh, unfortunate, like you said, they're, they're a bit unnecessary. And then there's another rather nasty bit about the Irish, uh, milder, but still pejorative. Yes, 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 but we can't go by that sort of thing. You're Irish, I think. I am that. And the Irish have rather a vivid imagination, haven't they? I mean, it sounds mild, but really what it's saying is that you can't trust Irish people. They're just yeah. lying. I well, mean, it's horrible. <laughs> it, 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 it is. But I, I, I do think, and Hannah's made this point in previous podcasts, and I think it, it applies here. That is what is said by one of the members of the opposing council when cross-examining right. a so, witness. Yeah. And uh, I, I, so we're, we're putting this casual racism into the mouths of a character. Um, I think the uh, Jewish reference is perhaps harsher because this is in the mind of Eleanor, Absolutely. who um, we're, we're, we're following along with. 
Okay, so let's get on to the adaptations. There are no films of this, but there is one TV adaptation that aired in 2003 as part of the ITV Agatha Christie Poirot series starring David Suchet. Um, I did rewatch it, actually. It's it's pretty faithful to the novel. There are two big changes, which I'll not get into because they're spoilery, but I think, actually, it's a really decent adaptation. The casting is really good. It's filmed at a beautiful estate, and I think it really gives you the feel of the book. Obviously, David Suchet's Poirot. It stars Elizabeth Dermot Walsh as Eleanor Carlyle, and I haven't really seen her in anything else, but she's really good in this. Rupert Henry Jones will maybe be better known to British uh, listeners. He plays Roddy Winter. We have a very young Kelly Riley of Yellowstone fame as Mary Gerrard. So if you watch Yellowstone and you're a big fan of Beth, then maybe check this out. You also have Paul McGann as Dr. Peter Lord. Um, and Diana Quick, the legendary Diana Quick as, as Aunt Laura Wellman. So it's a really cracking cast. And I think one of the better of the Suchet adaptations. Have either of you seen the TV version? No. Nope. Yeah, it's, 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 some of them are really almost unwatchable. I found Hercule Poirot's Christmas unwatchable, but I think this one's a, a decent one if you've got ITVX and you want to have a bit of a nostalgic look back. Well, right. at this point, I think we're going to leave it here for listeners who don't want to be spoiled. And we're going to come back after the end credit music to discuss the solution and some of the characterization of characters that would have been revealed if we had done it earlier. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this if you are now tuning out. The next episode in the series, episode 29, is going to be One to Buckle My Shoe. It's another Acule Poirot. It's, if any of you have any like dentist, dentistry angst, this is not the novel for you. And we'll have a discussion about whether it's a full or mini pod, but that's the next one to get excited about. It's not going to be Um, like that dentist scene with Laurence Olivier from Marathon Man, is it? I'm not going to... Not not far off, though. I mean, it's pretty... Oh, right. I I, I might have to sit that one out. My stomach might not be able to take it. (laughs) All right, then. I suspect that may well be a mini pod. At any rate, uh, listeners, thank you so much for tuning in, and we hope to see you next time. Uh, Stay tuned for spoilers. Okay, folks, so we're back. I'll just do a little quick summary of the solution and then you can have at it with all the clues, the spoilers and the characterizations. So the revelation is that Eleanor Carlyle has indeed been gaslit. She's almost on the verge of confessing because she did want Mary Gerard dead, but she did not, in fact, do it. The motive for the crime is, as ever, in Agatha Christie. It's either money or sex, and in this case, it's money. So basically, Aunt Laura Wellman died without a will in testate, which means that under English law, all of her wealth passes to her next relation, which everyone thinks is Eleanor Carlyle. But it is not, because she had a love affair, got pregnant, and was spirited away and had a daughter who she gave to the gardener um, to raise the gardener and his wife, and who became Mary Gerard. So very much like Downton Abbey, but not so much Mary, but her middle sister. Um, The daughter was uh, raised very nearby, and she paid for her education. And so Mary Gerard is actually the one who's going to inherit everything. And only if you knew the family background would you know this. Now, Mary Gerard's adoptive mother had written to her sister, who was a nurse in Australia. Australia or New Zealand? New Zealand. And who was a nurse in New Zealand about this, so she knew. And she had come over to England. We're taken to understand from Mercule Poirot that she'd done some dodgy murdering over there for money too. (laughs) And she comes over to England and murders her niece, framing Eleanor Carlyle so that she will inherit the money from her niece. So it's a very convoluted way to inherit money. Um, And actually, the poison was not in the fish paste sandwiches, but was in the pot of tea. Now, there is a plot hole. It's very rare in Agatha Christie to get a plot hole. But there is a plot hole in this book because the pot of tea, what if Eleanor had had a cup of tea? Eleanor also would have been dead. 
Luckily, in the TV show, they get they get around this by Eleanor declaring, I never drink tea, I only have coffee, so that's fine. Mm. Um, but it is a plot hole. The other kind of wider, more sort of macro criticism of this book, and it is the one thing that for me stops it going from sort of bottom of top tier to absolute top top tier, is that it's a very convoluted way to inherit some money. Um, and, it, and it relies on us knowing a lot of about, I think we can right. really and guess that Mary Gerard's the illegitimate daughter. I think there's legitimately enough clues, the photograph of the dashing man, the sort of the historic letters. I think you can piece together that Mary Gerard's the, the rightful inheritor. But the fact that the nurse is her aunt from, you know, down under, I think is pretty, for me, it's a wild leap too far. You know, um, as far as something up with Mary Gerard, we do get that line really early on from the uh, gardener, Mr. Gerard. You know, you're no daughter of mine. So that's sort of right there. You know, yeah. something's going um, It's just lamplit heavily and... Uh, yeah, as far as knowing, like, oh, it's the nurse. I don't think anyone on their own would necessarily go for that. It very well could have been that Dr. Lord somehow knew and was, you know, contriving to marry her for the money. You know, there's all kinds yeah. of stuff. But I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion that uh, one of the attractions that Eleanor holds for Dr. Lord is that she is incredibly wealthy. Because, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> that's, I, I, so that's just me being cynical. But anyway. <laughs> oh but yes nonetheless i mean i think it is to me it's just there are a couple of novels where agatha christie does this it relies on i mean arguably death on the nile it right it relies on yeah. paro knowing something about someone from a previous case that Great. we cannot be party to until the very end and he tells us and i always find that a little bit weak I think that there are reasons to defend that. I do think that she drops in clues that you you, you get sort of on a reread. Um, so, like, she is always talking to Mary about how she's fantastic and how she can have any man she wants. But every time a man is presented, Nurse Hopkins has got a good reason why Mary shouldn't take up with them. So, like, Roddy Wellman's interested. Yeah, but he's not the type of guy that you should be going for, Mary. You know, uh, Ted Bigland is presented and he, by all accounts, is like tall, tanned, good looking, you know, muscular. Uh, but Mary's too good for him. She's a cut above. Uh, so I, I just I feel that. She also wants you know, her to, to make her will, doesn't she? When yes. she at, the, at the point when she has nothing yeah. worth inheriting. And, and the <laughs> other thing that I thought, w w w which I, maybe I didn't get on the read, but I got curious about. So I picked at it was the amount of money. So we are talking about serious amounts of money. Oh, so yeah. like, oh, when this book was written, £200,000 was like £17 million today, which is like yeah. a big chunk of money. And she makes that bequest to Mary Gerard uh, of £2,000. And that's like £170,000 in, in today's money. But these aren't amounts of money to just be sniffed at. So like if I was... Uh, a serial killer in New Zealand who was a bit short of cash. And I knew that I had a niece who was um, set to inherit a load of money. I, I think I would be putting plans in place to try and make this sort of happen. So I, 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 I give Christy a free pass on this just because the amount of money is so big. I think, yes, a murderer will go to lengths to try and make this happen. Mm. You know, and I don't have any problem buying in that Poirot is clever enough to figure this out. Oh, no, you know, I have no issue. I mean, I think Poirot will figure it out. I just feel like, man, aren't there easier way to earn that, earn that money? Maybe not. Maybe not. I, I don't know. Being a, I, I, I have no easier way of earning £17 million. Pounds. I, I, I know it, it's like a, a long term plot because she's moved over to this village like five years ago but you know it's a big payout so. mm. i i do make a good point about it bleeding through more on a reread than an initial read and i will just say on a reread nurse hopkins is very much like claudius in the last act of hamlet like get the cup i know you're in the middle of a sword fight but that cup. remember the cup remember that cup over yeah. here it's very like he's yeah. being so stuffed about this yeah. damn cup, yeah. and uh, and so it's almost com it's almost comical. Like remember that well, though, dear. You know, like yeah. I, I, I think that's what she does really well as well. Like a good who done it. You shouldn't get yeah. it until you get it at the end, and then you should be kicking yourself for all the things that you missed all the way through. And and she does keep she she, she drops enough clues. The other thought that I had about this was uh, 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 sort of like when we were talking about them, there were none. 
we were saying about how the British legal system had taken a bit of a kicking off Agatha. And this book, it's almost like it's been sponsored by the Law Society because they are repeatedly <laughs> stressing the benefits of making a will. I'm almost wondering, is this part of some sort of mediated settlement that Christie's had to reach after she'd slandered the judiciary in the last in the last well, book? Do you like, not think that this would have been very much on her mind? I mean, you're yes, living in a London at a time of war. Your husband's trying to get back to the Middle East. Your daughter, who might inherit everything, you know, is about to marry a guy. So again, if she inherits, it goes to her husband. He's yeah. a serviceman. He could be killed in the war. You know, like... I think that this is Agatha Christie legitimately. It must have been playing on her mind. She was an incredibly rich woman, although also in debt. I think it's always interesting to see how, even in very small ways, the fact that we're in this environment of war comes to bear upon the books. Um, and not yeah. this one, but the one following. I think it will even more. Actually, it was quite funny watching the TV adaptation of this because they really try and ham up how far Roddy is a wrong'un. Because there's a, a bit in the show where he's having a chat with Hercule Poirot and Roddy's just been travelling through Germany and says how much he admires that Mr. Hitler for sorting stuff out. And you think, oh, <laughs> that's oops. rather... That, that, oops, exactly. I also noticed, actually, that in your radio version, the John Moffat one, um, Rupert Penry Jones has a part as one of the criminal lawyers. So he's in both oh, the right. deep radio. So that's quite interesting. Brilliant. Uh, a little coincidence, co-inky-dink there. But I, I've got... Two other points I think I'm, I'm going to make. Uh, the, the first one is I, I did want to talk about euthanasia because I, I got um, I, I was curious about this because there is this bit where Aunt Laura keeps talking about ending her life and Roddy and um, Eleanor are saying, you know, it would be a mercy. And uh, so I, apparently the British Euthanasia Society was set up shortly before. And um, apparently there was legislation proposed in Parliament that was never passed in 1935. So I'm just I'm almost wondering if this was something that would have been sort of part of the current zeitgeist back in the Maybe. 30s. People would Maybe. have been talking about it. And I think yeah. it, it, it's almost like it's a transition now. From a time where it maybe it happened a lot more, but people didn't talk about it. Mm. You know, the war mercy killings, whereas now it, it was f foremost in the public consciousness and it was very much this is illegal. Because Peter Lord talks quite a bit about how the nurses and himself wouldn't do it because they know what the consequences are going to be and how it would wreck their lives and, you know, how they'd, you know, be facing criminal charges and go to prison or get hanged. But, and mm. then the other one then was talking about this being sort of Agatha talking about her relationship with um, with her Archie and also with Max, because there's that bit at the end where um, Poirot is talking to Peter Lord, who, who thinks that Eleanor still loves um, Roddy. Mm. Uh, and Poirot says, she needs you now. Her pa past life is gone mm. and she may not love you with the passion she had um, for um, Roddy, but she needs you. And I'm almost looking at that thinking, I wonder if is that Agatha trying to explain to Max how she feels about him now? You know, Max might have been sitting there going, you know, but you were passionately in love with Archie and I never see that side of you. And he might be saying, you don't you don't understand. Like I was much younger then. I was a different person. And this is where I am now. And I just maybe I'm being overly sentimental. But I thought I wonder is Christy trying to say something to the people in her life in that point? Hmm. I think that's very valid. All right, then let's wrap it up here. Thank you very much for joining uh, Pat and Hannah, as always. And thank you, dear listener, for tuning in to the end. We will be back next time for one to buckle my shoe. Thanks very right. much, Bina. Thanks, Hannah. Uh, thank you, Bina. Love you. Thank you.